Good morning to each of you. Many thanks to Jesse for filling in for Chris in his absence. And again, many thanks to all of the musicians, singers who lead us in song each and every Sunday for their faithful service, their practicing and hard work. It really is greatly uh, appreciated. It's time for a new series, right? Yes, right. This past week, I was uh, in my office as usual, and I keep a, uh, just a piece of paper there with all the series we've done over the past 10 years, and I was looking back on these series and these dates, and I can't believe some of them were so long ago. It's unbelievable. They seem like yesterday. But anyway, it's time for a new one. And you have guessed from our grace verse, which we are memorizing together this month, that we are indeed going to turn our attention to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And this is where we are going to be for at least the next year. So get comfortable. Probably a lot more than a year because Paul has a lot to say uh, to the Corinthians. Let me give you a little bit of a sampling just to start off. How do I respond? How do you respond? When doctrinal disputes divide the church, what do you do? How do I handle sin? Blatant, not so blatant, within the church. Is it okay to marry an unbeliever? For that matter, is it okay to date an unbeliever? What should I do if my spouse is an unbeliever? Why is sexual immorality so serious? What's the big deal? How do I handle disagreements, falling out among believers? Here's a good one. What should I do if I don't like my job and I'm stuck in it? How do I remain pure when sexual perversion is the societal norm? How does the gospel shape the institution of marriage? Is it okay for me to divorce my spouse? How can I resist temptation? Are there really differences between men and women? According to what we're hearing today, no. But are there differences between male and female? Are there different roles for males and females? What should I do when factions arise within the church? What are spiritual gifts and how am I supposed to use them? Should I be speaking in tongues? How do I relate to the cultural norms and practices of those who surround me? How much of this culture am I allowed to embrace and enjoy? What does it mean, really mean, to love someone? Uh, Would you like answers to those questions? I'm not going to give you any today. But Paul answers all of them and many more in his first letter to the Corinthians. We will get there eventually in turn, but today we are going to establish a very 
important foundation. You know, just as I think of 1 Corinthians right now off the top of my head, I'm reminded of Paul's statement in 2 Timothy 3.16 where he affirms that all Scripture is inspired, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and what? And profitable. Amen. All Scripture is profitable. But you know what? Some Scripture, or let me put it this way, there are particular Scriptures that are particularly important at specific moments of time. And I think 1 Corinthians is a particularly profitable scripture text for our time because it speaks directly to much of what plagues society and it speaks directly to much of what we even see unfortunately transpiring in the church among God's people. So I trust you're excited about 1 Corinthians. I'm excited about 1 Corinthians. I'll warn you now, there are going to be high points, and there will be what? There are going to be some low points, and a lot of stuff in between. Paul addresses some very difficult issues. He does not mix words when it comes to addressing problems in the church at Corinth. And we are going to come face to face with what the Spirit of God has to say to us through this portion of Scripture. How should we study it? Let's start there this morning. How should we study it? For all you blossoming scholars, here's how I'm approaching the epistle. And I suggest you do the same on your own. I trust this will be helpful. Very simple, okay? Just how to get your mind wrapped around 1 Corinthians. I think basically all you need to do, the starting point anyway, not all you need to do, but the starting point anyway, is recognize Paul is doing two things. He's just doing two things. Firstly, he is responding to a report. He's responding to a report. And so look at chapter 1 and look at what we read in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And so Chloe's, I don't know, family, business associates, but somebody affiliated with Chloe has come to Paul. They have shared a report. Paul, do you have any idea what is going on back in the church at Corinth? A report has come to him. Skip down to the fifth chapter, verse 1. It is actually reported... Same report, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. And so in the first six chapters, Paul is responding to a report. And so if you want to study the first six chapters on your own, all you have to do is this. Answer the question, what was in the report? What are the issues? What are the problems? And you'll discover four or five major problems. Then ask the question, how does Paul respond to each of those issues? Then ask the question, how is that relevant for us today? That's the first big thing Paul does. The second thing he does, look at chapter 7, verse 1. Slightly different. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So not only has he received a report to which he responds in the first six chapters, he has received a letter from the church 
at Corinth, to which he responds. Beginning in chapter 7, all the way through to chapter 16. So still in chapter 7, look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed. And so it's an issue you raised in your letter concerning the betrothed. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now go all the way to chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. One more example, chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. And so in this section from chapter 5 through chapter 7 through verse 16, imagine as you read it, okay, Paul has received a letter. What are the questions that the church has directed at Paul in this letter? And there are at least 10 or 11 questions, topics, issues that the church has raised. Try to identify them. And then answer the question, what is Paul's response to each? And then answer the question, what is the contemporary relevance for us? That's 1 Corinthians in a nutshell. And that's going to be our approach by and large to a great extent over the next year. We're going to hear Paul's response to this report that has come from those associated with Chloe. And we're going to hear, come face to face with Paul's response to this letter that he has received from the church at Corinth. But to begin with, we're going to lay a foundation, an extremely important foundation, because it is the foundation that Paul himself establishes in the first nine verses. Everything he is going to say through to the end of chapter 16 relates back to the first nine verses of chapter one. Absolutely everything. If we don't get the first nine verses right, we will be ill-equipped to handle what he is going to say subsequently. Because in the first nine verses, he hits head on the underlying issue. To every topic he's going to address, every question he's going to answer, and every problem he is going to resolve. That if what Paul says, this foundation is not set, that he establishes in the first nine verses, we will not be prepared for what follows. The foundation is simply this. Paul, in meticulous detail, reminds the Corinthian believers of who they are. He reminds them of their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important because they have lost sight of who they are. And it is because they have lost sight of who they are that all of these problems and issues and questions have emerged. Because they've lost sight of who they are, they have adopted some of the idols of their culture. Because they have lost sight of who they are, they have formed factions within the church opposing one another. Because they have lost sight of who they are, 
They have turned their spiritual gifts into status symbols. Because they have lost sight of their identity, they're guilty of despising one another and looking down upon one another. Because they have lost sight of who they are, they have adopted a worldly view of wisdom. Because they have lost sight of who they are, they are ignoring blatant immorality in their very midst. Because they have lost sight of who they are, they themselves have indulged in sin. Because they have lost sight of who they are, they have failed to love one another as they ought. Do you get it? Do you see the connection? This is the foundation. Someone said to me last week, oh, we're, uh, we're going to miss next Sunday. And I said, well, don't bother coming back. <laughs> I was joking, right? <laughs> don't bother coming back. If you miss this, you miss the whole, nothing. Nothing that comes after is going to make any sense because this is the base. This is the foundation. The entire epistle, everything he's going to say, he's going to get quite verbose at times. Everything he says builds on the first nine verses. Do you know who you are? If you don't, it's a closed book. None of it's going to make any sense. Do you understand what it means to be a Christian? And is your identity shaped, defined, molded by what it means to be in Christ Jesus? If it does, you've got the foundation. Now we can deal with all of these problems which have arisen because you've lost sight of who you are. And so here is the foundation then. Hear it as I begin reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you ready then? The foundation, the Christian's identity, and there are eight marks. In just a moment, if you are using the clipboards, the notes on the clipboards, you're thinking to yourself, that makes perfect sense. Eight marks, there are eight things here to fill in. If you are using the sermon notes in the bulletin, right now you're going, huh? 
because there are only four. Something got lost in the email. You're going to have to deal with it. You're on your own. There are eight. Eight marks of the Christian's identity. Who are we? Number one, we are the church of God. Right back outset of verse two. I'm skipping over verse one. We are going to come back to it on a subsequent Sunday. Verse two, to the church, called out ones, to the church. He could have stopped there. That is in Corinth. He doesn't. To the church of God. That is in Corinth. What is he saying? To God's church. It's ownership. He is stating it emphatically right from the beginning. This church and you as members of this church, you belong to God. We are his by possession, by right. As Christians, you know, true, it's true. We are his by virtue of creation. He created us in his image. He's our creator. We are the creature. We belong to him. That's true. It's true. We belong to him by election. As Christians, he chose us, set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. It's true. He owns us by regeneration. He caused us to be born again by the Holy Spirit through the word. It's true. We are his by virtue of adoption. He has adopted us as his sons into his family. But I think what Paul has primarily in view is this. We are of God. We are God's because he purchased us through redemption. Christian, God bought you and he bought me. No need to turn there. Just listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. We like to think we are. We aren't. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Oh, the implications of that for the church at Corinth. And oh, the implications for us. I was in Costa Rica last year, and I had a sit down with a young man, Costa Rican, professing believer, living with his girlfriend. And I said, well, I'll just confront them on it. I, I, I did it lovingly and just raised this. You don't see an inconsistency there? No, no inconsistency at all was his response. Christianity is all about the soul. This was his response, his explanation. Christianity is all about the spirit. Christianity is all about forgiveness. Christianity is all about my relationship, my soul with God. But the body, I can do whatever I want with the body because Christianity has nothing to do with God has no claim upon it. The body is body. The body is material. The body will die. The body it will perish. All that matters is that my soul is right with God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, many of the believers in the church at Corinth have fallen into that kind of thinking. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. I can behave however I want, very dualistic in their understanding, their worldview, and their understanding of humanity, and therefore their understanding of salvation, and fallen into all sorts of error. 
And many today follow them in that error, thinking there's some sort of separation between the two. And as long as I'm all right with God, inwardly speaking, I'm free to live however I please, do whatever I please. No, we are the church of God. We are God's. We are his possession. He has bought us with a price of inestimable worth, the blood of the Lord Jesus. He has bought us, purchased us, body and soul. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Do you want a preview of the questions in Care Group Wednesday night? Here they are, just a few. Are you taking care of your body? That's a legitimate question, isn't it? Are you eating properly? Are you exercising regularly? Are you inflicting harm on your body? Are you disfiguring your body? Are you committing sexual immorality with your body? Are you contemplating suicide? The destruction, dissolution of the body. And we could go on and on and on. Christian, your body is not yours. It is God's. And we are to seek to glorify him Honor him with our bodies. Oh, the ramifications are endless. You've got three days to think it through before Wednesday night. What are the implications of that for my life? What does that mean when I get up in the morning? What does that mean as I make decisions, as I live, what I choose to do, what I don't choose to do? That I am not my own. I belong to God and I'm to honor him with my body. Here's the second mark when it comes to our identity. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. It's right there, second verse, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, it is tricky. Just just stare at that statement. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're called to be saints, meaning what? We're called to be sanctified. Well, that's, that just seems like gibberish. He's contradicting. He says, we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, but called to be sanctified. We are saints, but we're called to be saints. We are set apart, but we're called to be set apart. We are holy in Christ Jesus, but we're called to be holy. No contradiction because there are at least two categories when it comes to sanctification in scripture, isn't there? At the moment of conversion, we were sanctified. At the moment of conversion, we were set apart to a holy God. At the moment of conversion, God himself transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He transferred us from the kingdom of the devil to the kingdom of his son. He set us apart to himself in Christ Jesus. We are sanctified positionally. We are saints positionally. We are holy positionally in Christ Jesus. Now Paul says what? Now you are called to be saints. In other words, you are now called to actually act out what you are. You are now commanded to live according to who you are, your identity in Christ Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. That is who you are. Washed, sanctified, 
justified because there was that moment in time when you believed in the Lord Jesus and through faith you took hold of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, you became one with him. You are now in him. And because you are united with him in God's estimation, you are set apart to God himself. And now God commands us as Christians, those who are in Christ, to live out our identity. To live in a manner that is consistent with who we are in Christ Jesus. Kevin DeYoung states it wonderfully as follows. Because you, he's writing to Christians. Because you believe in Christ. By the Holy Spirit. And he's writing as if God were speaking. Because you believe in Christ by the Holy Spirit. I have joined you to Christ. When he died, you died. You're dead. When he died, you died. When he rose again, you rose again. He is in heaven. You're in heaven. He is holy. So you are holy. Your position as a Christian right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, and seated in my holy heaven. Now, act like it. That is what God is saying to us. Now, act like it. Understand your identity sanctified in Christ Jesus, understand what you have been called to be, saints, holy, set apart in soul and body in life for God's use. Here's the third mark. We are those, as Christians, we are those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Picking it up again at the start of verse 2. To the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What does it mean to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ? I think we can state it perhaps most concisely as follows. It is to cry, help, help, or save me. We are those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning we are those who understand, we really get it, that our salvation full and final is found in Christ Jesus Therefore, we call upon him to save us. Paul writes elsewhere, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because when we call upon the name of the Lord, we are confessing our sin. We are confessing that we do not possess any merit. We are confessing, we are acknowledging that there is really no reason in us why God should save us. There's no reason why he should look kindly or compassionately or favorably upon us. 
Therefore, we are what? We are calling for help. We are calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. Why? Because he lived the life we were required to live. Think on that. The Lord Jesus lived the life that we were required to live. He died the death that we were condemned to die. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we become one with him through faith, we discover that we now possess all the righteousness we need to stand before God because we find ourselves clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are those who call upon the Lord. The Corinthian church is not living in a manner consistent with that. They're not. They've belittled the grace of God. And it's evident in the way, oh, it's so apparent in the way in which they're treating each other. Just listen, for example, no need to turn there to what Paul's going to get at later in the fourth chapter, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? Really? Who sees anything different in you? There's nothing different in you. What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, what do you have that is not a gift of divine grace? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so putting it in the vernacular, Paul is asking them, why are you so arrogant? Why are you living like that? Why are you acting like that? Why are you so condescending? When it comes to your fellow brothers and sisters in the church at Corinth, why is this, there's this factionalism and all of these groups and divisions and you're at each other, just nitpicking all the time? I'll tell you why. It's because you don't know who you are. You've forgotten what it is to be saved by grace. You've forgotten that you do not possess anything that is not given to you by divine grace. It is all a gift. Would you please start acting like it? That is what Paul is urging them to do. Oh, the relevance here. You're going to hear some of them Wednesday night. Here you go. Does a spirit of legalism still lurk within my heart? Do I dare to think I have merited God's grace more than anyone else? How do I know if I'm still thinking that way? You know, my answer to a very simple question. Am I motivated by contempt or compassion in my dealings with others? That's it. It's not, very, it's not rocket science, folks. A am I motivated by contempt or compassion in my dealings with others? Mercy received is mercy bestowed. That's Paul's point here. We are those call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth mark. We are recipients of God's grace and peace. Third verse, it's a prayer, a prayer of blessing upon his audience, the recipients of this letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust you've picked up on the fact, well, if Paul is praying grace and peace upon them, he is evidently not referring to that grace which they received at conversion. We were justified by faith 
through grace, right, in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he can't be talking about that grace. And if he's talking about peace in the present, well, it can't be that peace that comes from reconciliation with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We enjoy peace with God through the blood of Christ Jesus. No, he's saying grace to you. It's something present. It's actually something ongoing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is this grace that is in view It is God's ongoing, continual, loving care over us and watchfulness for us. He gives us strengthening grace to endure affliction, sustaining grace to remain faithful, equipping grace to serve God, illuminating grace to understand Scripture, encouraging grace to vanquish fear, enabling grace to obey God, comforting grace to overcome sorrow, fortifying grace to resist temptation. And what is the peace that is in view? It is shalom. It's the great Old Testament blessing. It is the fulfillment of the great Old Testament promise, the great Old Testament covenant, the promise of all promises, the heaven of all promises. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And it is living daily in the experience of shalom. What it is to have God as our God. And the inheritance that accompanies our possession of God as our heavenly father. Oh, Paul is going to come back to this truth, this mark of the believer's identity time and time again. Especially when it comes to these believers struggle with sin. For example, again, no need to turn there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptation to sin is going to come. Problems in this life are going to arise. Trials, afflictions, suffering, pain, sorrow, loss, some of it severe. It's going to come at some point on the highway of life. But nothing is going to come that is beyond your ability to sustain and endure. Your ability? Whose ability? Who's strengthening us to endure? By God's grace. It is the fulfillment. It is the answer to this blessing. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you discouraged? Do you feel like giving up, packing in? Are you tired, weary, exhausted? Whatever word you want to use. Are there troubles in your life that you simply cannot fix? Here's what we must hear. We are God's possession. As Christians, we are God's possession. He has taken us and he watches over us as if we were the apple, the very pupil of his eye. He is jealous for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds us with a strong arm, even when we feel little joy and sense very little assurance 
He carries us with a mighty hand. Even when we limp through life, barely able to see beyond our immediate struggle. In the words of the psalmist, God's mercy is great above the heavens. And in that mercy, grace and peace, we find all we need to endure along the way. Do we understand it? Do we live in the reality of it? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Mark number 5. We are enriched in Christ. Pick it up in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, again, here he's not thinking of forgiveness for sin. I mean, he, he, he certainly does not deny that, and he celebrates it at every turn. But as he speaks here of the grace of God given us in Christ Jesus, he has something very specific in view. He tells us in verse 5 that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So here's the fifth mark again. We are enriched in Christ. Enriched with what? Grace gifts. He mentions two specific grace gifts, or what we might more easily identify as spiritual gifts in the fifth verse. Two that I, I, I conclude were particularly prominent in the church at Corinth. Speech and knowledge. That these were two gifts he had bestowed upon the church among a whole array of gifts. And these gifts given to them as a manifestation of God's grace toward them. And these gifts with a very specific purpose, the edification of the church. Paul is going to come back to this on several occasions. Because in the church at Corinth, they were no, no longer viewing nor using their gifts in a manner that was edifying the church, rather in a manner that was dividing the church. And they were looking at these gifts again as status symbols. They were feeding their pride. They were lording it over one another. They had misappropriated and were now misusing these spiritual gifts. So Paul is going to remind them of their identity. Uh, these are something Christ has given you. These are grace gifts. And the purpose of these gifts is not to make you feel particularly important. It is not that you might feel prideful. It is not that you might feel better than others. No, it is so that you would get down in the dirt and serve others. And that you would actually edify others. That you would actually build others up. And so later in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7, he will write, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What is the manifestation of the Spirit? In the 12th chapter, he is speaking about these grace gifts, these spiritual gifts. The manifestation of the Spirit given for what? The common good. Again, preview. Wednesday night, do you want it? Okay, here's, here's a question for Wednesday night. What's your gift? Sure hope you know. What's your gift? Or gifts, whatever the case may be. Are you using it? If yes, how? If not, you know what my next question is going to be? Why not? 
Are you actually using your gift here at Grace Community Church, especially those of you who are members and have taken a covenant to serve this church? Are you using it in a way that actually serves the church and leads to the common good, the edification of others, the building up of others, the encouragement of others, the correction of others, the comfort of others? A purpose-driven life, right? There's our purpose. It's not complicated. We belong to God. He owns us. We are part of his church. We are awaiting the return of Christ. And until he comes back, by his grace, he has distributed gifts to each and every one of the members of the body of Christ. Here's our purpose. We are to use those gifts to build up the entire body so that the body matures and grows and endures until the final and full revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a question, I think a great question on Wednesday night, I don't have it written down, I hope I can remember this and write it down later. Are you engaged in that? Is that our purpose? Is that how we view life? Is that how we view our involvement in the local church? Is that my understanding of ministry? If it isn't, it is a failure to understand our identity, who we are in Christ Jesus. Here's the sixth mark. We are those, I just alluded to it, who wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, from the top of verse four, follow his thought flow. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that, so here's why these grace gifts were given. I want you to get this, your identity, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait. For the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hate waiting. I think most of you could probably empathize with that. We hate waiting. We live in an age of the immediate, the here and now. Some of us aren't even prepared to wait three minutes for an egg to boil. We just hate it. The waiting. The Christian life is all about Waiting. It is simply one prolonged wait. Christian, you're saved, but you are not yet saved. Do you get it? Maybe not. I'll explain in just a moment. You're redeemed, but you are not yet redeemed. You're adopted, but not yet adopted. All of these things have a present reality. Yes, I am saved. Yes, I am redeemed. Yes, I am adopted in Christ Jesus. But I do not yet enjoy the fullness of what that means. I'm saved awaiting salvation, full and final. I am redeemed, but what am I waiting for? Redemption. I am adopted in Christ Jesus, but I am awaiting the full and final adoption I am waiting. And so Paul will write later, as in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection will mark the consummation of our salvation our redemption, and our adoption. And it will be only then that we will enter into the fullness 
of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be one, united by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ, what it means to be God's possession. And in the meantime, we must wait. And God has given the common manifestation of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, grace gifts to the church to build us up and to encourage us and to support us, to help us do what? Wait. I may have shared this before. In Portuguese, there's a verb, esperar. I'm sure in Spanish, it's probably esperar. Uh, in English, we have two words, verbs, to wait, to hope. In Portuguese, it's only the one verb. Same in Spanish. It's only one verb. So I'm waiting for the bus. I'm hoping for the bus. I'm waiting to get married. I'm hoping to get married. I'm hoping for glory. I'm waiting for glory. I'm hoping for salvation. I'm waiting for salvation. It is exactly the same thought. To wait is to hope. To hope is to wait. This is who we are. We are waiters. There you go. Write that one down. We are waiters. We are those who are waiting and hoping it is our entire existence. I recall years ago, a young woman, the name of Florence Chadwick, she decided she was going to swim from one of the islands at Catalina Island, I'm not sure, off the mainland of California. I don't know how many miles separates the island. But she decided one day she was going to swim and she had an entourage and all these boats accompanying her. And then she went into the water. It was a foggy, misty, gray, gloomy, rainy day. And off she went, hours, hours in. And finally, in the midst of the fog, the midst of the cloud, she gave up. They pulled her out of the boat and they headed for shore. Turns out they were only half a mile away. But she had absolutely no idea because she couldn't see where she was going. Later in the day, she gave a news press conference and said something to the effect, you know, if I could only have seen the shore, if I could only have seen the shore, I'm not making excuses, but if I could only have seen the shore, I could have made it no problems. I think it was a month later, she proved it true, bright, cloudless day, jumped in the water, swam from Catalina Island to the mainland coast, no problem. Friend, do you see the shore, your identity in the Lord Jesus? If we lose sight of who we are in the Lord Jesus... If we lose sight of what salvation is all about, if we lose sight of what we're really hoping and waiting for, guess what? We're going to give up and we're going to go under. Oh, to have our eyes fixed on the prize. This is something that the Corinthian church has lost and Paul is going to address it time and time again. Number seven, we are sustained to the end. Seventh mark, when we will be declared guiltless. And so you have Christ's name right at the end of verse 7, a qualifier at the start of verse 8, who, so the who is the Lord Jesus Christ back in verse 7, specifically his revealing, who he will sustain you to the end. He will do it. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. First phrase in verse 9, I think it belongs to verse 8, the thought in verse 8, God is faithful. God is faithful. The seventh mark, we are sustained to the end when we will be declared guiltless. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We cannot sustain ourselves. I am keenly aware of my inability even to place one foot in front of the other, spiritually speaking. I realize that on my own, I will quickly flounder. I will quickly turn back. But here's the great promise. God is faithful. God is faithful to complete in us what he began in us. He, through the Lord Jesus, will sustain us to the end. And on the end, on that judgment day, we will be declared guiltless, faultless. Oh, we need to remember. The Corinthians have lost sight of it. Oh, we need to remember. Our God is in control. A faithful God. Unperturbed by the apparent chaos that swirls around us. Our God does not fret. Our God does not panic. Nor does our God worry. Carries out his perfect plan. And we celebrate him as our king and our father, no matter what crises we face. The terrors of the world cannot overpower us because God is faithful. Troubles of the world cannot overcome us because God is faithful. And the temptations of this world cannot overwhelm us because God is faithful. Finally, we've made it. The eighth mark. We are called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Exact words we have in the ninth verse, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The term fellowship doesn't really mean what most of us tend to think it means. We use the word fellowship relationally, meaning uh, we're having good fellowship. We're having some, there's some sort of feeling here. Uh, I'm experiencing something, fellowship, intimately. That's not what the word means when it comes to fellowship with God or fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Scripture, it actually means participation. We were called into the participate, we were called to participate, fellowship, into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is reminding us that by the Spirit of God, God has made us one with Christ, whereby we now participate in Christ, we fellowship in Him, meaning what? What is His is now ours. We alluded to it earlier. His death is ours as Christians. We died His death as far as God is concerned because we're one with Him. We fellowship with the Lord Jesus. We're in Partnership, if you like, participation with him. His resurrection is our resurrection. The life he now lives is the life we live. His names and titles are ours. That's why we are Christ, Christ Christians, Christ, Christians. We are sons of God. We are priests. We are kings. We are prophets. All that is Christ is now ours. We are clothed in his righteousness, his obedience, his faithfulness. This is fellowship. 
This is what it means to enjoy the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is something into which we were called. It's summed up beautifully in our grace verse. The text we're memorizing. You have it right there at the end of chapter 1. He is the source of your life. Who's the he? Look back into verse 29. God. God is the source of of your life in Christ Jesus. We have been called into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the benefits of this fellowship, what it means to be in fellowship with him, whom God made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God has made Christ all these things to us. All these things are ours because we've been called into this fellowship with Christ Jesus. Therefore, verse 31, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Oh, the great lesson the Corinthian church has to learn and a lesson we must learn and constantly remind ourselves is this. Daily, we must call our attention away from ourselves to our identity with Christ, what it means to be called into fellowship with him and seek to live accordingly. Just notice something, an important detail in conclusion, and perhaps this is a wonderful thought just to bring it all together, these eight marks, these eight points. As you go back and reread those nine verses, search for the name God and you will find it six times. And Paul is seeking to impress something upon us, and it is simply this. All that we are as Christians, we owe to what? The grace of God. You go back and you read those verses and count up how many times he makes reference to Christ, the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Nine times. Why? Because he is seeking to convey to his audience, by extension, remind us that our identity, all that we are, all that we possess, is by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus. If we get those two things, yes, those eight marks are very important, but these two things in particular, we owe everything to the grace of God. And all that we are is ours in Christ Jesus. There is the sure and steady foundation upon which the rest of the epistle makes sense as we seek to live in conformity to who we are in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray now your blessing upon your word. So thankful for the Spirit of God who accompanies your word and speaks through it and by it and to us. And so we pray that we might indeed hear your voice as we've opened your word this day. May you give us a spirit of wisdom and of knowledge and understanding in the things of you. And may we truly grow in our understanding of our appreciation of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, knit together with him through faith, especially as we embark on this series, Our Father, in the weeks and months ahead. As we do the hard work and the labor of studying your word, may you prepare us, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive. And may all of this result for our edification 
our joy and your glory. And we ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.